1: Welcome back, everyone, to part two of our two-part podcast on cybersecurity. I want to continue our discussion with Ted Flittner and Ted Mayashiba of Aditi Group, as well as Bruce Benton, the CAHU Vice President of Public Affairs. So we're just going to go ahead and continue right where we left off. Hey, let's talk about cyber safety while traveling, because now a lot of us are starting to feel safe to travel again. We've seen some issues with Travel companies, including Malaysia Airlines, British Airways, they were victims recently, and now we're heading out for vacations and business travel. What are some of the things that people can do to be safe while they're traveling?
2: One of the things that, that we usually tell people um, is you have to be prepared that if you travel, um, that your devices could be lost. Um and, and it's not something that people like to think about, but having an entire strategy for backups, uh, for, for basically the replacement of your device is critical that you have a plan to do that. Uh, either, either if it's a, um, a malware that we just wind up wiping the entire computer and restoring from backups, or whether you lose it or dunk it into the swimming pool um, you have to be prepared to say, well, it's only a piece of hardware. The part that's important is the data. And get me another device, and let me load on the data, and let's keep on moving. Uh, so, for the for the traveler, that's that's certainly one aspect that you have to be uh, cognizant of.
3: Yeah. So, in addition to being you know ready to really lose that device, you know, similarly, uh, what is the data? that we need from that device, you know, kind of having a plan, um, having those passwords um, available or knowing, hey, you know, what if I need to get a password to one of my accounts while I'm traveling? Who am I going to call back home if I need to? How am I going to get that if I need to log in? Can I, you know, use a a public um, computer? Please don't do that, right? Have a plan, think that through in advance and kind of have um, have it known for the you know, family or company, uh, co-workers at home, don't fall for the scams. <laughs> hey, I'm going to take a, a trip. Um, don't fall for that phone call that says I need you to wire, you know, certain, a you know, certain amount of money overnight to some dude in India. Um, you know, really um, have a plan and communicate that plan, you know, and think about it in advance. Do you have a VPN that's a virtual private network? Do you have a, a software subscription for a VPN that you can use or a hardware VPN that you can use while you're traveling so that um, you can have a secure connection and still be on hotel Wi-Fi or at the local coffee shop, you know, so have those things prepared in advance and also, you know, be mindful of who is listening or watching, you know, um, over their shoulder, you know, while you are on your computer, you see this all the time, you get on the airplane, you know, and you're and the everybody's sitting, you know, just elbow to elbow next to you, you know, uh, we get pretty casual and we open up any kind of thing on our computer or on our phone. That could be passwords. It could be, you know, something that's easy to to be seen and um, that's social engineering. And it could be something that's easy to overhear, you know, Hey, you need to make a uh, hotel reservation. So you're giving your name and your credit card, things like that. Um, It's easy to um, kind of, Feel the urgency of a situation and forget that hey you're you're out in public you're not inside your own home. Um, sometimes when you're having those conversations, so be mindful of that when you're on the go.
1: been yeah, some, some really good uh, information and good advice there. Speaking of being at home, because you mentioned that, Ted. Uh, How does the COVID-19 stay-at-home scenario add to the risks of data breaches and cyber attacks? I mean, what can be done to mitigate this? Since a lot of companies now, since COVID, have decided that they can save money by having people work from home. They don't have to have those large offices. And, you know, it's uh, saving rent and saving a lot of other expenses at the office. And some people just aren't bringing people back to work. So what are some of the basic must-dos and don't do's that companies should be practicing?
2: I think one of the largest um, areas of of concern for us usually is uh, the internet of things. All those Alexa devices, uh, door locks, uh, Nest thermostats and the like, um, usually those are the least secure items and yet they have access to your network. So even if you don't click, um, people can get to your nest and load malware through that and onto your network. And I think that uh, there has to be a, an honest conversation if you have people working from home uh, about how to secure that. And I know that uh, Ted and, and you have talked about this on, on the podcast before.
1: Yes. That, I think that, yes, we have
2: that is that is the biggest area of concern for work from home,
1: yeah, and also Ted has personal experience because I know that he installed additional hardware at um, my vacation home because I have a lot of guests that come there and you know I'm doing my work and you know which 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 network do you use for work? Which network do you use for your you know your guests? Uh, where do you put do you put your your cameras and and your Alexa devices and so forth on a separate network than, than your work network. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about that? Because I know that Ted's gone through all that with me, and he actually uh, installed some some hardware and, like I said, my vacation home to make sure that I was safe and secure in that manner. So, Ted, perhaps you could uh, get into some of that a little bit for us.
3: So, really, the uh, the whole goal here is to to keep uh, protected your business information and your protected health information and you know that valuable business data from everything else because at home things are really casual and things are really mixed. It's, you've got this different situation than you had in the office um, at home. You've got computers that the IT or the company, you know, the, the IT department or the company did not configure and lock down and encrypt and commission and so on, you know, so you've got a whole suite of other devices at home with a whole range of vulnerabilities. Maybe they're up to date, maybe they're not, maybe the kids are using them, maybe they're not. These Internet of Things, uh, the devices that are not really designed for rate security that are on the same network. So, at the end of the day, it's it's really about separating that. So, making sure that you're working on a machine that's not used for other things as well, and not having your family working on that machine. And one of the things that's key is to what create what we call a virtual uh, local area network, a VLAN. And a VLAN is is basically saying Um, We're going to use the same network cable in the house, but we're going to kind of virtually separate, you know, um, some of the users in one area, some of the users into another area. So we can create basically a virtual, um, virtually a private business network and a private kids network and a private, you know, Internet of Things network and so on or, or guest network. And, and mm-hmm. so
1: that so that can be done both by in a virtual in a virtual manner as well as hardware.
3: Well, it's it's using hardware to create that virtually. Okay. So you, you so you need some hardware to do that, and that's a, a managed switch. Um, and that's there's. That's the term. Manners. That's
1: the term I was looking for. Managed switch. Thank you very much for reminding me.
3: Thank you. That's, so there's a you know that, that comes from a lot of different makers. There's a lot of different forms of it, but it's basically a piece of hardware that has some software and is basically in the software space is separating, you know, users into different realms that you have, you know, configured. And, you know, it's not, it's not, you know, uh, super sophisticated, you know, but it's really effective. And it's, it's really affordable when you think about the risk that's at play, the risk of, especially as a business owner, the risk of having one of your employees um, have some vulnerability at home, and therefore your whole company's network could be vulnerable or your whole business plan or your whole consumer database, you know, which is uh, very expensive when that's next that up gets reached.
1: Yeah. And you and I've talked about this before in previous podcasts and, and training and so forth. Uh, some differences between, you know, people working at home and the kids walking into the room and uh, all sorts of distractions going on. I mean, is something as simple as an ethernet cable, perhaps um, one of many solutions?
3: If you can get on the hardwire as opposed to Wi-Fi, then you're reducing some risk. So everything you can do to reduce risk is a benefit. And, you know, that's following kind of the idea of minimum necessary with HIPAA. That idea was all about, you know, we realize that risks are here, that risks are just part of the environment. There are going to be risks. So let's try and minimize those. Let's, when we're having a conversation, let's close the windows. Yeah, that's <laughs>
1: right. yeah. Especially a These business are... a business conversation, your Zoom meeting with your with your team at work, and you're talking about a really sensitive project, and then you've got all the windows open, or you're working outside on your patio, and your neighbors are two feet away, right behind the fence. Uh, you know, that's that could, something. People just don't employees sometimes just don't think about those things.
3: Yeah, and so at the end of the day, it's about let's continue to reduce those risks, and you know, probably probably your neighbors are not going to take that information and spread it. But, you know, maybe they will. Maybe somebody's recording something. Yeah, never you know, maybe, know. Maybe somebody really uh, wants a way to get some more revenue right over the fence.
1: And maybe they just came across one of those people selling those services that Ted Mayashiba was talking about. where
3: as a service.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. So well, you mentioned you mentioned kids at home and so forth. So let's get more into this. And we've talked about this before, you and I, Ted Flitner. um, online gaming is so popular of course with kids and it has some really serious security issues you know in the past few years particularly what about the parents of those kids what can be done to keep your kids as well as your data safe while you're allowing your
3: kids to play online games well there's there's not a guarantee that you're going to keep your kids safe that using multiplayer games um, it is constructed so that your computer is looking for signals from the outside so you're it's, you're basically open to receiving messaging from the outside, and that is uh, kind of the vector that somebody can attack through. You know, so with a software hack, with some kind of malware, they can find an exploit there. And it's you're basically uh, using something that is designed with vulnerability. And so, you know, there's not a guarantee that kids are going to be safe. There's no real way to guarantee that. What there what you can do is separate the kids from you. That's that virtual. Local area network, the VLAN, that's creating separate networks so that kids are over there, you're over here, and you all want to make sure that it's not on the same machine that you're using for business. And you know, maybe it's not the kids that are doing multiplayer games. Maybe it's you know, maybe it's you know, you or some of your staff. Are, are you
1: saying that adults and parents and <laughs> that we could be playing those games as well? I personally yeah, don't, but a lot of people do. <laughs>
3: well, that's big business, you know, and it's, it's software's been around a while and. You know this is this is really advanced. You know, incredible software. You know, these they're kind of basically mini movies going on um, that you can be a part of playing out these. Um, you know, and at the end of the day, you want to make sure that you're not using your business machine with those softwares, and it's not really different than using um, a toolbar in your browser. Some of those like the Yahoo toolbars and so on. Those pieces of software are designed to uh, have open windows and ports so that you're receiving messages from the outside, really, which, which is that's a, an attack vector.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk about potential new cybersecurity regulations. We're hearing in the news about the Department of Homeland Security. They're working on regulations, as is the Transportation Security Administration and the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. They're all getting involved. You know, How much do you think the government can really help with this problem? And even if we have regulations, is that going to solve the problem?
2: <laughs> uh, it's, it's difficult, but but a couple of steps that have been taken recently uh, may help. One is um, they've started out certifying first responders. It's kind of like when you have a large fire, you have a bunch of people, smoke jumpers, that go in to try to put it out. Um, the one thing that makes makes it difficult to fight malware is that we just don't have the data. We don't know who these people are. We don't know how they get in. Um, in a lot of cases because it never gets reported. So that that that's something we've been calling for for years is to have some central clearinghouse for that kind of information. The second one is to be able to take down Bitcoin harbors. Um, you know, we talked earlier about uh, R-Evil, um, the large um, uh, malware as a service uh, company. um Yesterday or the day before, I think um, it was noticed that they suddenly disappeared off the web, and nobody knows where they went, and nobody knows what happened. But it's certainly a good thing; <laughs> it's wonderful that they, that they cannot be found. Uh, well, also the f- they may be getting ready to come back though in a different format, or a different name, or That's- something. <laughs> Oh, absolutely, absolutely. They may, be, the they may just be.
1: They may just be updating their 800 numbers. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Very true. Very true. Um, the other thing is, um, we we've seen the government go after um, the uh, the pipeline wherever the 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 Bitcoin went, uh, Bitcoin Harbor went for the uh, payment to get the. Uh, decryption software for the colonial pipeline um, the government went in and recaptured that repatriated yeah at least at
1: least a, at least a portion it. of it at least a portion of it portion which, of it yeah.
2: yeah and some is better than none. absolutely and and hopefully if enough of that happens then people will be discouraged because as we said at the top of this podcast it's all about being able to separate money your money from you, and if they can't keep it, then where's the incentive? Yeah. But um, th- those are things that the government could do. Beyond that, really, it's it's up to us. Uh, right. Personal responsibility, making sure that uh, we've locked down everything we can.
1: And Ted Flittner, you mentioned in, when I asked you this question for my article, you talked about how uh, regulations aren't going to change human behavior. Do you want to comment on that a little bit?
3: Yeah, really, Frank Abagnale Jr. You know, nailed that. You know, that was the Catch Me If You Can movie, well, the real life um, exploits of Frank Jr. Um, you know, he pointed out after you know racking up millions in in, in fraud in the '60s um, that it's so much. Yeah, I think I think his comment was it's it's hundreds of times easier to do that now than when he was doing that in the '60s when he was you know, standing in line and overhearing conversations and doing kind of the social engineering. It's so much easier now to do fraud, you know, and and his point is that people are the weakest link. You know, he, he always brings that up and we always bring that up, you know, comes back to people. So really no matter, you know, what kind of policies and procedures we have in place and what kind of, you know, government rules there are and so on, people are the weakest link, you know, and me included, we make mistakes so are we paying attention or not? Are we moving too fast and clicking on something we shouldn't? It, it comes back to us, um, which comes back to that culture of cybersecurity, the culture of this is important and we, you know, we've, we value the time we put into um, being more diligent, the value we put into the tools, we put value, we recognize and we put value into using stronger passwords. And having a password, um, secured password database where we're storing our passwords. So we're actually using long, strong ones and not just really short ones we can remember. You know, it's that's the culture that says we value all these things, we value uh, protecting things, and we have plans and we keep, you know, um, assessing our risks. That's the culture that's changing how people behave. Yeah. And and that's reducing the
1: risk. Absolutely. And it's that people thing, that weakest link that we've been talking about throughout this podcast, of course, and in all of our trainings and everything else. And Bruce, I'd like to ask you about cybersecurity regulations and your thoughts on this. As the CAHU vice president of public affairs, what do you think about potential new cybersecurity regulations?
4: I think the challenge is that while sensible regulation makes sense at a practical level, to most small business owners, regulation would mean increased cost operations. Candidly, everyone is at risk to cybercrime, and therefore, awareness and assessment of the risk factors is obviously important. And then a commitment to put in practice the necessary safeguards to minimize exposure is necessary. So,
1: yeah, that's very valuable information. It's kind of very similar to what we've been talking about all throughout this podcast and other podcasts and articles and training everything that we've done it all comes down to the weakest link and that's a good uh that's a good lead-in to the next thing i want to talk about and that is proper training with everything that we know um it all comes down as you all said and as we all agreed a lot of times it comes down to people it comes down to the weakest link which is the human being So let's talk a little bit about training for frontline workers and businesses, meaning people that sit on computers a good portion of the day or most of the day, they're at their keyboards and they're just going at it all day long. What kind of training do they need to help protect, you know, the company's security?
2: I think it comes in waves. Um, First, basic facts. They need to understand, you know, what, what's, necessary, they have to be brought into awareness. But then after you get past awareness, then it's really practice. It's just being able to have these people practice um, all the things that that we've made them aware, and it's being able to communicate with them. And uh, as as, uh, Mr. Flintner has said, it really deals with what is important to the organization and what do they talk about? Uh, I can probably tell you that without even stepping foot into most of these places, most are concerned about money. Most are concerned about funds. And that's what everybody talks about, costs and, and income. And I think a third thing has to be added to that, which is cybersecurity. And we just need to seed our conversations with that uh, more often.
1: Right. Right. And obviously training is so important and we all, you you, guys know, you train with me. We do a lot of training and at our company and, and your company, we do them jointly and, and, and individually as well. And we do HIPAA privacy and security training, you know, GLBA training. We do, you know, cybersecurity training, electronic security training. It all comes down to what works for that company and people really need to understand that they need to evaluate their own company functions and figure out what it is that they need to protect and which employees need to be trained to protect whatever it is that they need to protect. And I think a lot of companies have the right idea. They start off perhaps with the, the right idea. They send their privacy officer, their privacy work group perhaps to a training But they send it to them one time, and then they kind of forget about it. They sort of say, okay, we've been trained. We're all good to go. Not understanding that these things change constantly, that particularly cybersecurity, that's something that, in my opinion, you need to have on a very, very, very regular basis. And we can talk more about that. So, I mean, why don't you guys give me some of your... You know thoughts on this, and so that I so people can hear that it's not just me. Yes, I am a privacy and security trainer. <laughs> that is part of what I do. But this is important stuff. Uh, what do you what do you guys see out there, and how important is training the electronic side of this, the cybersecurity part of this? How important and how often should people be trained, depending on what they're doing?
3: Well, it's the utmost importance, and you know we, we keep kind of throwing out the phrase here of uh, culture culture of cybersecurity. You know, and the truth is that all of us have either had to change habits or or need, still need to change some habits, you know, us included. You know, we're we're changing habits from being very lax and open with things um, to having strong passwords and always being diligent um, with you know, encrypting files and how do we transfer files? You know, because there was a time when we didn't have to be. You know, there was a time when we didn't do everything electronically. There was a time when there weren't so many threats and it wasn't so easy for us to be act. Um, you know, so culture change, habit change comes with practice. You just got to keep doing it day after day, 21 days to change a habit. You no, know, that's you know, what people say sometimes. Um, you know, it's, it's really repetition. And so go to class. Cool. You know, this topic is not different from other topics in, in, in terms of when you go to, and you learn something new, if you don't put that into practice and put it into practice regularly every day, then it, it doesn't stick. It doesn't really make a change. Right. And that's why training and that's why communication, the proactive communication, the top down from the, from the top down uh, leadership saying, we believe it's important. We're putting resource into it. We're, putting, we're giving you time to do this. We're giving you the tools to do it. And we're all using the tools. And depending on what your job function is, where you're at, you might have different tools and training to support it, but everybody's going to do this. And that's, and that's a, that's a, a complete culture. What we see sometimes is companies will say, okay, well, we'll just give some of these tools to, you know, people in IT or, you know, one specific, you know, some C level employees, you know, and then maybe not others below them or just the, maybe the people who are in the accounting department and not, you know, people, um, higher up in the company. And it's really um, making changes throughout the business and supporting people in their habit changes.
1: Yeah, I think that's all very good information. I know that when we train jointly and separately, we have for privacy work group members and privacy officers and security officers, we do a pretty extensive training i don't think i've ever seen anyone do it as extensively as we have actually you know we used to do 6 hour trainings live in person for privacy officers of security officers and privacy work group then we had to cut it down to 4 hours when we had to go into the virtual world due to covid but even cutting it down to 4 hours that i always kind of feared that we weren't really covering everything we needed to cover and it's not that you just take that one training cuz you train your security officer you train your privacy officer you train your privacy work group they're the ones that are responsible for this but It's getting down into the, you know, the nitty gritty of the staffing. It's getting down into the people that are doing these job functions. That's where it sort of falls apart. I think most companies are good about getting their, their head people, their privacy work group trained. Uh, But they, and they may give one or two trainings to their employees, but they kind of let it go at that point. So what is really good? I mean, is it every two to three years? Is it annually? Is it every six months? You guys know what I'm going to say here. What do you, what do you think is, what do you think is enough training?
2: Well, you know, we've done we've done some with uh, long term clients and I've gone out and done live face to face training for years, every six months, because every time I go out, there's a different nuance. and There's something that has changed and the facts, the facts of the facts. But as IT be- changes and new products come out, new technology gets introduced. Um, Things things the application of the facts that we presented the first time change. Uh, and people don't realize uh, that these changes are occurring, but uh surprise um, this is what it means with this new product. And that's why it's important uh, to continually update. The skills, because it's really the nuance and the application to new products, yeah, and new I, ways of doing things.
1: I, I agree wholeheartedly. And again, I think at the executive level, like I said, the privacy officer, the security officer, the privacy workgroup—you know—they they need to be trained in that extensive training. You know, every couple of years at least for the extensive training. But that doesn't mean that you should skip the other types of training on a more regular basis. Uh, what I've seen is, you know, uh, again on the electronic side, particularly. Right now, particularly with cybersecurity and all the stuff here, I really think that people need to take a serious look at this and, and you know, train their supervisors and managers quite frequently, um, you know, at least a couple of times a year, as Ted Mayeshiba, as you just mentioned, uh, to get them involved in this. But train your actual employees doing the work really, really frequently, because as you said, it's, it's they need constant reminders. Human beings tend to forget. It was important today because I was trained on it today. It may even stick with them for a week or two, but after a, a, a month, after a couple of months, things that you trained them on, it's all gone. Higher priorities are in their mind. Fixing today's problem, you know, getting the deadlines met that their boss scheduled for them, you know, that sort of thing. But I think we need to come back down to that and say that those employees need to be trained, especially on things like electronic security, as Ted Mayashiba, you mentioned, changes constantly. And cybersecurity, with all these new threats, I think it's something that they need to be training, you know, at least every couple of months, if not every month. Uh, And sometimes I know that you guys have also, uh, you also have some mini trainings that you do little five-minute to ten-minute little trainings that you can throw at them on a regular basis, even maybe even more frequently than that. Um, but anyway, what are, your, what are your thoughts on this?
3: Well, we really believe that it's, this is an ongoing thing, so it has to be an ongoing conversation. It has to be kind of ongoing exposure. And we, we like um, kind of combining long, kind of like, like we have you know, like the four-hour class, the six-hour class that somebody does on a much less frequent basis with the five, 10-minute reminders, the five, 10-minute quizzes and reminders that can happen on a weekly basis. And the thing we want to emphasize here is that it's it's all levels of the company. It's the from the chairman of the board, you know, down to the um, the newest, you know, camp hire. It's really everybody, and everybody has you know different exposure. Um, they might have kind of some different risks for the company, but it's, it really involves everybody. And if it's not everybody doing it, it, won't be seen as as valued by everybody in the company. And that's kind of what we run into, you know, often is that. Um, You know, maybe some busy executives will say, hey, this is great. Everybody below us needs to be doing this, (laughs) you know, uh, because we don't have time for this, you know, and and that's, you know, again, we run into that kind of um, in lots of situations where hey, we really don't have time for this because this is not value added. This, This is not bringing money into the company. But it's like any other activity where you're looking at how do I reduce the costs, um, the cost side, the expense side on the company. How do you it's reduce the risk.
1: risk? Yeah, it's about risk. Absolutely. Is, and, that's,
3: and that's all cost of the company, whether that's direct money, whether that's reputation, whether that's penalties.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I personally, like I said, I like the idea of what we've recently started doing is having people be trained, you know, their bigger trainings, less frequently, but, and then try, training your supervisors and managers under your privacy work group, uh, and then start training your all employees, you know, uh, and then figuring out what specifically uh, targeted training uh, needs they have and doing that on a regular basis, monthly or even weekly, as you said, with those little mini type things constant reminders and let people know how important cybersecurity really is and electronic security because that's what's driving all of this right now and i don't think anyone can be trained enough and i think that you really need to as the business owners out there if you're listening to this podcast you really need to take this seriously because training is your you know basically the best thing that you can do to protect your organization that weakest link that we've talked about all throughout this podcast it all comes down to the human being and you have to know that you can train them so that they're not clicking on bad links so that they're not clicking on, on things they're not supposed to so they're not participating in these phishing expeditions and giving them valuable information that's going to later destroy your company potentially so again I just uh, I'm glad you guys are on the same page with me on this and I just think we need to do this uh, on a regular basis And and next I want to talk a little bit about cybersecurity and cyber liability insurance because obviously that's important um, it's it's a, a good thing that's available on the market and not enough people in my personal opinion are taking advantage of it Ted and Ted what do you guys think about uh, offering and, and actually purchasing something like cyber liability coverage well I think
2: as in all insurance it's really protection against catastrophic damage uh, if you have, um, if you have to rebuild uh, databases and the like from scratch, then, then yeah, you, you, you better have some kind of a financial backup uh, to go with that. Now, the cost and, and the items that you can, uh, that are covered by the insurance, I would have to defer to, to probably Bruce or somebody that says, this is worthwhile, but um, you know our uh, our view has always been uh, the devices are replaceable, and the strategy to get those devices are replaceable. The thing that's not replaceable is the data, and that's really where you have to protect. So if you are in a position where that, that could be lost, um, then I would go after uh, cyber cybersecurity insurance. But, uh, you know, that's that's something for uh, for Bruce to talk about. Yes.
1: So, Bruce, I want to bring you into this conversation now. And, and I do apologize for not bringing you in with more uh, specific questions earlier. But I want to talk a little bit about cybersecurity insurance. I know that it's available. And I know that you're not only a life and health agent, but also a P&C agent. So as an expert in that field, is it affordable and is it worth the price? I mean, can you share your thoughts on this? What kind of options are available in the market? Uh, Is it worth it? And how important is it that companies look at uh, cybersecurity liability insurance overall? And, you know, because of all the things that are going on recently uh, in this market and in the whole ransomware scenario and so forth, are the prices now skyrocketing due to all the media hype and everything else due to all the losses? Tell us about this and how it's impacting the market right now.
4: Well, network security and privacy insurance, which today is commonly known as cyber liability insurance, has really been around since the 1990s, and obviously it's come a long way, as you can imagine. Uh, albeit in today's environment, the underwriting and the pricing process has become a bit complex, even more so over the past year. The fact is that a significant number of employers are not even aware of that cyber liability insurance even exists. In addition, many are not even able to obtain quotes or obtain pricing uh, due to ineffective internal security safeguards, policies, and procedures. Uh, in other words, the, the safeguards they have in place in their in their businesses. It's kind of like wanting to insure high value property in your home, but then the insurance company finds out that you don't have any locks on your doors and windows. But generally speaking, if you're using IT professionals to mitigate risk, coverage is relatively affordable, recognizing, of course, that pricing is proportionate to coverage limits. Uh, Some insurance companies are more competitive than others, and this can change from year to year. In addition, some insurance companies may offer higher sublimits relative to things like social engineering, funds transfer, and computer fraud. Therefore, using an insurance broker that has expertise in cyber liability uh, and access to a broad market is important. And of course, completing an application for coverage begins that process of uncovering potential deficiencies and to determine actual pricing. Uh, lastly, I would say that uh, transferring of risk from businesses to insurance companies uh, has always been a smart business approach. Uh, And uh, for those that are proactive, the cost curve can actually be bent downward.
1: Oh, well, that's very valuable information. Thank you. (laughs) I appreciate that. Because this is so important, we're putting an inquiry form on our website on the Empowered Education Center's Privacy and Security Education section so you can get information, which Bruce is, of course, assisting us with on cyber liability coverage. Well thanks you guys so much for helping me with this podcast today. If anybody wants to reach out to Aditi Group for, you know, information on electronic security and cybersecurity, how can they do that?
3: You can find us online at aditigroup.com. That's ad A-D-I-T-I groupcom And you can contact us online. You can call us. Our phone number's right on there. And we're happy to start with a risk assessment. We're happy to give some consultation, or we're happy to jump in and, and take care of your computers and your updates and so on, get you out of trouble and get you back focused on what you do best, which is your business.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that.
3: Dorothy, it's been a pleasure. We always relish the opportunity to talk about security and privacy and educate people on on what they can do to actually protect their own things. And Bruce, how can they reach you if
1: someone wants to get a hold of you and ask you some questions on this?
4: Uh, Everyone is welcome to contact me uh, at my business phone number, 818-AREA. 988 9880 or you can email at Bruce at Genesis Financial and that's G E N E S I S Financial dot biz B I Z.
1: Okay, great. Thank you. I also want to mention one more time about our education platform, which is called the Empowered Education Center. It can be found at our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com slash empowerededucationcenter or just click on the Education Center link at the top of the homepage. Once again, I'm Dorothy Koshu, your host, and I'd like to thank you all for listening today. Stay tuned for more important cybersecurity and other important updates and training options at AdvancedBenefitConsulting.com within our Empowered Education Center, or you can contact me directly at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Thanks, everyone.
0: Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools, This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.